I want to talk to you for a moment or two about the narrative arc of the Bible. Now, we've talked about this a couple times before, but this is particularly pertinent to what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks. Uh, so we have to understand the nature of the Bible. We have a tendency to look at it book to book. It's a collection of 66 books that were written by at least 40 authors, probably more. Uh, it took somewhere between 1,500 and 1,700 years to write the Bible. Uh, it's written in a number of languages over a number of cultures, and a wide variety of events were occurring in the world. And the incredible thing about the Bible is it's not just a collection of books. The Bible tells one story. There's a narrative arc that begins in the garden uh, and kind of commences kind of quickly with the fall of man and the ejection from the garden. And the whole rest of the Bible, all 66 books, is a story about how God is going to restore his relationship with his children. Uh, so we begin at the beginning with the garden. We end with the new Jerusalem, which is kind of the new garden at the end. And every book in the Bible Every chapter in every book, every paragraph in every chapter, and every verse in every paragraph tells us something about the character and nature of God. It also reveals something about his redemptive plan, which rolls out over the, the entire scheme of these 66 books. So everything in the Bible serves a purpose, and that purpose is the revelation of God to his creation. So we, we call this progressive revelation. We learn a little bit more as we work our way through the Bible. And if we understand that concept, if we understand that everything in the Bible is there for a purpose, we also should understand that the Old Testament has incredible impact on how we understand the New Testament. We will never fully understand the New Testament unless we get our arms around the narrative arc through the Old Testament. So because God is revealing himself in the Old Testament, he's showing himself to the Jews. He's really putting himself on display for the entire world so that when the Messiah shows up in that dusty little town in the first century, everybody should recognize him. God has been revealing himself for 4,000 years by the time we get to the first century, particularly to the Jews. So people are without excuse if we understand the scriptures. So one crucial element of what we call this progressive revelation is a concept called typology. Typology. Now, typology is a foreshadow. It's a portent. It's a look at something that is going to happen in the future. It's a peek under the hood of the character and nature of God and of his redemptive plan. It's not perfect. We'll get into that in a little bit. It, it, it's not meant to be an exact replica of what's going to happen. It's a hint of how God relates to his creation and his children. Now, I've got to tell you, the concept of typology and the way we use it is something that's debated amongst theologians. They're very good, very well-respected theologians who don't believe in the concept of typology. They say that, well, we look at things that happen in the Old Testament, and we kind of impose the New Testament stories upon them, but they're really not meant to work that way. There are just as many well-respected and revered 
theologians that believe the typology is deliberately inspired by the Holy Spirit. I fall in the latter category. I think there's too much evidence of events that happened in the Old Testament that point towards events in the New Testament. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. Now, I didn't want to call this typology part one, two, and three because people who give me input says that's too academic. So we're calling it Shadows of Christmas. Shadows of Christmas. And I've already gotten a couple emails. Christmas is not a time of shadows. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. We're going to take a look at it and see. So I'd like you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And uh, we've got a lengthy passage. We're not going to cover it all. We're going to hit the high points. But I'm going to show you seven points in this passage that will have pertinent to something that happens in the New Testament. So here are the seven points we're going to see. And I know as soon as I say seven points, people are going to go, oh my gosh, he's not going to do seven points, is he? Okay, the, uh, I, I promise to have you out by four. <laughs> so we're going to see, and, and uh, Charles Orndorff has already pointed out to me that I did not alliterize these, and so I apologize. Uh, but I, they all do start with A. <laughs> so, so we're going to see a barren woman. We'll see a good man. We'll see a husband who doesn't understand. Some of the ladies are already poking, okay? We will see a church that at first lets this woman down. And then we'll see a, a, a shepherd that listens. Six, we will see a supernatural, miraculous son. And finally, we will see a mother who gives her son to God. This is the story of Hannah. Okay, so 1 Samuel 1, starting with verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tahu, the son of Zuf, an Aphrathite. He had two wives. I love this. Okay, so, you know, people look back, well, in the Old Testament, they were polygamists. They had multiple wives. Why don't we have them today? I'm going to tell you something. Whenever you see a man in the Old Testament has more than one wife, trouble's coming. <laughs> trouble's coming. There is no positive narrative to somebody who has a lot of wives that it ends well. And so here we have Elkanah, and he had two wives. They could have just stopped the story right there. Okay? But the writer thought that they needed to explain. So the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, there's a setting for the story right there. We have to understand the culture. It was agrarian. Uh, the world functioned on an agrarian economy. And so it was important if you had land, if you had livestock, that you had a family. You had to have people to help you take care of the livestock and to work the land. So people who didn't have children not only had a lot of work to do, but they were kind of looked down upon. This was even more pronounced in the Jewish culture because Jews had a, a, a premium placed on lineage and genealogy. Uh, they had to track the genealogy for a number of reasons. First, they had to know who owned the land, who originally had the land because it stays in the family in perpetuity. So they needed to know who owned the land. Uh, there had to be children so that you could turn your things over to them. But more importantly, they had to track the lineage of the Messiah. They knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew that he would be from the, land, from the tribe of Judah. 
So they had to track this so that when somebody would stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, they'd be able to go to the genealogies and prove it. So in order for all of that to work, the family had to be able to reproduce. So you couldn't allow that they had all these these intricate laws for what would happen if a man died before he had any children and the brothers would step in and all sorts of things just to keep things in order. So a woman who was barren would bear a stigma in this atmosphere. She would be looked down upon. And in particular, when it got to the Jews, she would be looked upon as somebody who was being cursed by God. For some reason, God is not allowing this woman to bear children, and that will be a hardship. So Hannah lives in this environment where she knows that everybody's expecting her to have a baby, and she doesn't. Now catch this. It's something you won't pick up out of the, the passage. Hannah is aged. She's probably well over 70. If we take a look at the Midrash, now the Midrash is a running commentary written on the Old Testament by Jewish scholars during the time that those things occurred. So it is a credible, reliable commentary. The Midrash puts Hannah at 130 years old. So Hannah has bore this burden of being barren. There's some alliteration for you. For 130 years. She's lived in a culture where there have been whispers in the corner. There have been accusations. She hasn't been invited to the local teas. And that sort of thing. Because there's something wrong with Hannah. That's our first point. A barren woman. A barren woman later in life. Physiologically, Hannah is unable to have children at this age. So verse 3 says, Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. He's taking care of his family. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Now, we have to understand this about Elkanah. He he understands all of the the problems and and, uh, the the burden. He understands what, what the family's gone through. There's been whispers about him as well. But he loved his wife. He's devoted to her. He's not standing in front of her and saying, I'm so disappointed in you, you're not able to produce an offspring. What's wrong with you? It's your fault. He's not doing the accusation. He's doing everything he can to express his love to Hannah. Now, in the culture, again, so the fact that he had the second wife, uh, the culture would demand it. If, If he had been married for 10 years to Hannah and had not had a child, it is very likely that Hannah would have gone to Elkanah and said, I think you need to get another wife. I don't seem to be, be able to have a child. She would have encouraged it. So culturally, everything's fine, but Elkanah is devoted to Hannah. So his, his favor upon Hannah would have been a, a little bit of a tension with the families around him saying, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be favoring the one that's giving you the children. But Elkanah is a good man. It's our second point. He's devoted to his wife. He's doing what's necessary to 
to uh, preserve the lineage, but he loves Hannah. And, and the second half of verse 5 says that he loves Hannah, though the Lord, though the Lord had closed her womb. Who closed her womb? The Lord. They go, oh, wait a minute, maybe God is mad at her. No. I mean, we, we have to see the rest of the story to understand, but there is a reason and a purpose that the Lord has closed Hannah's womb. There is a reason and a purpose that Hannah is going through the things that she's going through. Her suffering is not meaningless. It is not futile. Yes, she's bearing this embarrassment, but God has a plan. And whatever the plan is, it involves Hannah going barren for 130 years. You think that's some waiting? Verse 6, and her rival, Anena, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Here's, here's a level of Hannah's suffering over this. She's so sick about it, she can't eat. And Penina, uh, she's like standing in the corner, nanny, nanny, I have kids and you don't. And, and maybe Penina gets a little bit of joy from this, but it is, it is an arrow to Hannah's heart. I, I mean, think of the complexities of this. This woman's able to give Elkanah something that she can't give him. The community sees it. She's reminded of it every day. She's reminded of it when they go to church. Of all places. Verse 8. Now Kana, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? He sees it. He feels her pain. Why do you not eat? He sees that there's something wrong. Why is your heart sad? And then, then he lowers the boom. He says, am I not more to you than ten sons? He's a good guy. But he doesn't get it. You know, he says, come on. I, I mean, we, we can make this more romantic. I mean, effectively what he's saying, at least we have each other. We'll always be together. He's saying, you, you know, Hannah, if, if you never have a child, it's okay with me. You know how much I love you. We, we don't have to have a children in order to have a relationship. And we don't have to have children in order to be committed to each other. We've got the church. We've got, we got you know, and so it's okay. But what we see here is that Elkanah, as good a guy as he is, he doesn't fully understand what his wife has gone through. Aren't I good enough? And she could go, no. <laughs> it's not like she needs something more than Elkanah, but there's a void in her life that's not been filled. And Elkanah is thinking maybe he should be able to fill it. She has a husband that doesn't understand. That's our third point. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Hannah goes into the temple. Eli's somewhere in the background. Maybe she doesn't see him, whatever. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remind me 
that, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She said, Lord, answer my prayer, and I'll give the son back to you. The son means everything in the culture I live in. Give me a son, and I'll give him back to you. And I'll, I'll devote him to a holy way of living. He's talking about a, a Nazarite vow here. And she continued praying before the Lord, verse 12. Eli observed her mouth. Watch this. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, verse 14, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Hannah is pouring out her heart. The husband doesn't get it. Peninnah is needling her about not being able to have the children. She runs to the church, cries out to God, and the pastor comes up and goes, you're drunk. She must have been devastated. She's looking for answers. She's looking for comfort. All she gets is judgment. An accusation. But she's a strong woman. And she answered in verse 15. No my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. She's been told she's worthless all her life. And now here's the priest telling her she's worthless. Don't, don't call me worthless. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli, a light goes on in Eli's head. You can all see him go, oh, what have I done? And he says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. He gives her a blessing. So we've gone from the church that has let her down to a shepherd that is listening to her. Now that had an impact on Hannah. Finally, somebody hears. Verse 18, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went, away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. She's worshiping now. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. I don't have to explain that. And the Lord remembered her in verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So here's our sixth point. A son. And miraculous supernatural occurrences occurred. Physiologically, something has changed. And at 130 years old, Hannah has a baby. She keeps the baby. You know, we look at this at weaned, and we go, oh, two, three years old. Uh, but something about the ancient culture is kind of interesting here. Uh, the age for weaning has, has decreased over thousands of years. Uh, in Hannah's culture, the weaning age was four to six years old. And you can find that actually in the book of Maccabees, in the Apocrypha. 
Uh, so Hannah keeps the baby for four to six years, somewhere around there, probably four or five or so. And then, then she takes that son to Eli. In verse 26, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. She's like, remember, you thought I was drunk? <laughs> okay, and verse 27, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So here's our seventh point. A mother who gives her son to the God. Now, that's, that, that's a big move. Okay, in any family, that would be a big move. I'm going to take him over to the church and leave him there. Uh, now you know why he had to be a little bit older. What is a priest going to do with a baby? Okay, so he's a little bit older. He can do some chores. He can learn some things. They can communicate with him. And she takes this baby that she's waited 130 years for and gives him to Eli. Hannah's commitment is total. The one thing that she's wanted all of her life, she lays on the altar. And, and, and she doesn't say, here, Eli, I give him to you. She says, I've already given him to the Lord. Now, the relationship there doesn't end. If you read on further, you know, she visits him. She's making coats and, and so on and so forth. But she surrenders him to Eli. And, and you, you, you know, you can, you can see the rest of the story. It's an incredible history of Israel. Samuel goes on to be the first in a long line of prophets that are sent to Israel. And he is the bridge. He's the transition between the era of the judges and the era of the kings. As a matter of fact, Samuel identifies and anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. So he becomes pivotal to our narrative arc of the Bible. And, and so what we've seen here, we've seen the, a barren woman, uh, older in age. We've seen a good man, uh, albeit one who doesn't necessarily understand everything his wife is going through. We see a church that at first lets this woman down, but then we see a, a shepherd that goes in and listens to her and we see a son born miraculously. And then we see it, maybe even another miracle we could call it. The mother who surrenders her son to the Lord. So what does this foreshadow? Well, you know, I, my first thought is Mary. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's pretty good. Uh, we, we need to understand a couple things again. The, the nature of typologies is imperfect. They're not meant to be an exact image of what's happening. So we have to kind of back up and look at the big picture if we're going to understand how a typology applies to something that happens in the future. They're, they're incomplete images of what will become complete and will ultimately be perfected when we all stand in glory. So we, we, need, to un, we need to know what this typology reveals about the character and nature of God and his plan of redemption, if we're going to understand what it's pointing to. So what did we learn? Well, the first thing we learned was that God hears the prayers of his children. He hears their prayers. And the second thing we learned is God redeems. He hears prayers and he redeems. And the third thing we learned is that God moves in the supernatural. 
He can, he can change things around any way he wants to. He can alter the laws of physics. He can alter the laws of reality because he's God. He moves in the miraculous. The, third, the fourth thing we learn is God honors those who are committed to him. Now, the fifth thing we learn is probably the most important. God has a plan. Now, we, I, I, we hear that all our you know, bumper stickers. God's got a plan for your life. Did he have a plan for Samuel's life? You bet. Even more important, did he have a plan for Hannah's life? Yes. Did it include some hardship? Absolutely. Did Hannah suffer? She did. Did she go through heartbreak and disappointment and dashed expectations? She did. But God had a plan. And Hannah was smart enough that when she saw the plan, she surrendered totally to the Father in heaven. So if you want to see what this typology points to, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. It's the story of Elizabeth. Starting with verse 5. In the days of, now watch this, this, this is pretty amazing. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. That's our first point. A barren woman, advanced in age. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, he's a priest, he's, he's a descendant of Aaron, he's a good man, our second point, a devout Jew, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, Zechariah is a good man. He's a good husband. They're, they're, there's nothing wrong with them. They are righteous in the eyes of God. And he's a priest, and he has prepared all of his life to go into the Holy of Holies and serve. And this is his moment. In spite of everything that's happened, this is his moment. He goes into the Holy of Holies. Nobody can go in there lest they die. So he's had to go through all of these cleanings and all of these ceremonial uh, uh, garb and everything to get in there just to stay alive. And there's an angel in there. And you could see Zechariah going, does everybody see an angel? <laughs> Is this something they didn't tell me? There's an angel in the Holy of Holies where he expects to encounter the presence of God, the Spirit of God. There's an angel standing there. And what does the angel say to him? Not, Zechariah, you've done a good job. You know, you're a fantastic priest. Aaron would be proud of you. He says, Elizabeth is going to have a baby. Whoa! Out of all the scenarios I can conjure in my mind, that would be one that I would go, Really? Zechariah doesn't do that. 
He says, how do I know that's going to happen? I mean, literally, he starts informing the angel of the details. I, I, we do that, don't we? God, you know what my situation is, but let me just explain it to you in case you miss something. He said, don't you realize how old we are? He's reminding God that they're beyond the age of childbearing. He's literally saying, uh, I hear what you say, angel, but I, you know what? You might have been wanting to talk to the guy before me. He was a lot younger. Uh, you might, uh, have you checked the date? You know, there's some mistake going on here because Elizabeth can't have a baby. Uh, so th this is not, th this is not a, a real question, how shall I know this? It, it's literally Zechariah going, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to give me some sign here because this is, th this is so far beyond my, my range of experience that I just don't see it. Maybe the next guy, have you been waiting for the right guy to come along and you tell us everybody? Who knows what's going on? But Zechariah doesn't believe it. And so we have a couple of points all along here. Number one, Zechariah is the good man. He doesn't understand what this statement means to Elizabeth. So he's a good man who doesn't understand his wife. But he also represents the church. And at the moment that Elizabeth needs him to embrace this promise, he rejects it. And the church lets Elizabeth down. Zechariah walks out. Well, here's what happened. The angel says, I'm Gabriel. I'm not just any angel. I'm the archangel. I'm the big guy, okay? God sends me for very special things, and he sent me to you. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah can't talk. Comes out of the temple. Everybody's standing there. What happened while you're in there? He's like. They know something's gone on. Nobody knows what it is because Zechariah can't talk. He goes home. Verse 24. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth understands the impact of what just happened. Then down in verse 57. Now the time had came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Another one of her points, isn't it? And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. That was tradition. Actually, Jewish tradition was that the father would name the son. Zechariah can't do that because he can't talk. So everybody's going, well, he's going to be Zechariah. That's the way we do things, right? Okay, and so there's this assumption here, and... His mother answered, no, he'll be called John. And the crowd goes, you can't do that. Nobody in your family's named John. This isn't right. And we're looking at each other. You believe what she's doing. You know, now that her husband can't talk. Look, she's a controlling woman. She's taking over. They're telling her not to do it. 
And they made signs to his father inquiring what they wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. Finally, Zachariah gets an idea. Maybe I ought to write something down here. <laughs> okay? And he says he'll be called John. Elizabeth now has a shepherd who listens. He heard her. He got it. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the, all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. They see the miracle. They see the supernatural occurrence. The only way anything like this could happen is if God moved. Now you know why she's been barren so long. When she does have the baby, people look around and go, something's going on. These things don't happen. Then we see this in verse 80 of Luke 1. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What mother allows her son to go live in the wilderness. Wearing burlap. Eating bugs. I don't want to have to tell you what would happen to that mother today. Family services here. We hear your kids living out in the good, outside on his own. The mother gives up the son. She surrenders him to the Lord. She's decided that God can take better care of her son than she can. She knows that God's hand has been on this boy since before he was conceived. And she trusts God. So 1,000 years before John the Baptist was born, God showed us how he functions in the story of Hannah. Hannah wasn't barren woman. She was older. Elizabeth is a barren woman. She's older. They were both married to good men who had their flaws. They both lived with disappointment and shame. They were both redeemed by God. They both gave birth to sons. The first one was given to the Lord, and he became one who identified and anointed kings. The second one was given to the Lord, and he became the one who identified the king of kings and the Lord of lords. See what God did there? So what we learned from this, I mean, yeah, it's great. I love the parallels. Amen. They're interesting. So what? Well, we, we, again, we have to back up. We have to look at at what we've learned about the character and nature of God in these stories. God, he set the prototype, and then he fulfilled it. There's more, but we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, okay? So here's what we learned. Number one, God hears our prayers. God, and those prayers that are offered up in surrender to him, God redeems God moves in the miraculous. He moves in the supernatural. He honors those who are committed to him, and he has a plan. So all the suffering, all the embarrassment is, is not for naught. There's a reason for it. 
God is working in all of these lives here. You see, if I can understand that about the character and nature of God, then I can believe that he's working in my life as well. I can believe that he hears my prayers. I can believe that God can redeem any situation. You see something? There's nothing that is beyond redemption. There's nothing that any of us have done that can't be redeemed. There's nothing beyond God's forgiveness when we submit to him. So whatever shame I've had, whatever secret I think I have, God can redeem it. Because he moves in the supernatural and he has a plan. So the world is not filled with chaos. We're not the victim of someone's decision and we're not under the control of Satan. Those of us who call upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those of us who have repented, those of us who believe he's the only Son of God, we have eternal life and we are going to a very particular home and that's part of God's plan for our life. And regardless of what happens to me here, regardless of how I feel, regardless of what people think about me, regardless of what I've been done, if I have faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to that home. So we learn quite a bit about how God functions. I like that because it's some personal application that will get me through today. All I need to remember is that whatever I'm going through is not futile. It's not without rhyme or reason. God may know. I don't. So let's go. Let's just go a little bit deeper. Let's put it in our laps and take a look at it. If you're struggling, if you're dealing with disappointment, if you're dealing with shattered expectations, if you have a spouse or a mother or a father or a brother or sister, people around you of the work that, that, that just don't understand, if you're feeling ashamed or embarrassed or lost or adrift or apart and the people around you have let you down and the church has let you down and what? God hears. God redeems. He moves supernaturally. He has a plan to honor those who are committed to him. All we have to do is place our complete trust in him. That's hard to do sometimes. We all have a tendency that we want to kind of commandeer the situation and make things happen. How far was Elizabeth from commandeering the situation when she sent her son out to the wilderness? Hannah and Elizabeth gave to God the most precious thing they had. And God took their commitment and changed the world. Yeah, he used Samuel. Yeah, he used John the Baptist. But he took these women's commitment and trust in him and altered history for all time. And that... That was his plan all along for these two women. So that's what that looks like in our lap. Now let's draw back and take a bigger look again. Both of these stories foreshadow the greatest story any of us have ever heard. God hears the prayers of those who believe. He moves in the miraculous and starts a transformation in those who call upon him for salvation. 
A transformation that will last all eternity. He redeems through his only son, Jesus Christ. And he honors and blesses those who are committed and sold out to him. And here's the beauty. That's been his plan all along. That's God's plan of redemption. The shadow of Christmas casts itself over all of creation, over all of history. We see a hint in Hannah and Samuel. We see a hint, not the fulfillment, a greater hint in Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And we see the reality in Jesus Christ and salvation through him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the incredible complexity and beauty of your word. We pray, Father, that you would impress upon us the full counsel of Scripture, that we might walk in these truths that we see here, Father, that we would come deeper into our understanding of your character and nature, Father, deeper in our understanding your plan of redemption, how it works in our lives, how it will work in the lives of those around us, Father, knowing that you save us, not just to get us into heaven, but to make us messengers of this incredible plan that you have, Lord. Let the shadow of Christmas fall over our lives in a profound way. In Jesus' name we pray.